The views and opinions expressed on the Poor Ass Podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of BME Recovery Content Productions. Any content provided by our guests are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. And on that note, enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I have a new website. Go to www.poraspodcast.com for episodes. That's www.poraspodcast.com. So if you hear vcomedy.com, that is the old website. Go to www.poraspodcast.com for episodes and enjoy the show thanks for listening thanks for supporting bye welcome to poor ass podcast the show that talks about tough shit on a budget with your host veronica porus everyone welcome welcome to another episode of poor ass podcast the podcast where we talk about living uh, sustainably while on a budget today's guest is greg Asdorian. he is a native san francisco bay area entertainer born in the heart of san francisco and now residing out in the east bay he has been performing his relatable endearing and self-deprecating brand of comedy since the age of seven all over the West Coast at colleges, clubs, and casinos. Greg also hosts the Morning Wood Show on Pirate Cat Radio every Wednesday morning. That can be heard from <laughs> 8 p.m. Are you still doing that? No, no, not even kind of. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll edit that out. <laughs> it's been a long time since I looked at my website, clearly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll just leave it at uh, casinos. So note to self, edit that yeah. out. Okay, okay, Greg. Oh, maybe I'll leave it in. That's kind of funny. That is funny. <laughs> you still do that. Uh, maybe I will leave it out. I mean, it's up to you. I mean, I this is. I, I could care less. I think that's kind of funny, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, Greg and I are, uh, I, I know Greg from the comedy com- uh, community, um, when I was doing like comedy in San Francisco. I still do comedy, but more in like in the recovery, uh, circles, uh, now. And, um, I moved to Portland in 2018 and I think even before that, I think the last time I saw you was probably like at a show even before, before that, but it's been a while yeah, uh, I, I think I think we met when I was hosting Bliss Bar, that open mic in Noe Valley. Oh wow! I think that's Bliss where we met. Bar. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> it was probably like a host, or you were hosting. I was on a show, yeah. and we um, got in touch ever like ever since. And so, uh, I want to fast fast forward and. 
catching catching up and we're Facebook friends. We've been Facebook mm. friends for like a while now. And that's how I found out that you um, tested positive for, for COVID. Oh yeah. And that was fun. So <laughs> fun. Yeah. So, um, and it was getting to the point where like when the pandemic first um, broke out, like no one in my net Facebook network was getting affected. And then I mm. kind of like knew as, it was going to um, progress, I would eventually know people uh, um, either affected, tested positive, or um, have uh, passed away. And I saw your, then like comedian friends started posting their experience with with COVID and I saw yours. So um, how... Like, how did you find out that you were positive and what and how how did you what was your experience like? Um, it was it was scary um, because I am like, um, I don't know if anybody, anybody can look up how and see what I look like. I'm not exactly like screaming Mr. Health right now in general. Like I'm a heavy set dude. I've got type two diabetes and like so I've got a handful of like, you know, health conditions. So like theoretically COVID could have been really dangerous for me and uh, me and my son both got exposed. So um, he, he's six and we got it. It was the week before Thanksgiving we got diagnosed. So like right before like the biggest, like, you know, food holiday of the year, like we lose our sense of taste and smell and like can't eat anything. And like, um, but it was rough. It was, um, it laid me out for about three weeks, I think a little over three weeks. I just, uh, I was having respiratory issues. I was, uh, my body was aching, so I couldn't move around a ton. And it was, it was tough. Like it's, uh, it's no, it's no joke. It's a lot of people like had like surprisingly mild experiences with it. And I'm like, you know, you guys are lucky. Um, Cause me and my son were like, it hit us really hard. Um, it, it was, it's funny that we were super careful. Me and my, me and my, um, me and my family, we like always wore masks. We did everything correctly. We like followed all the guidelines, followed all the rules, and we still got exposed to it at one point. So, you know, it's, it was, it was intense. It was, it's so funny because like people talk about it. They, there's a misnomer to it where people say it's a lot like having like just a really bad flu. And like that's true. It, it feels like the worst flu you've ever had, but it also has so many other things piled on top of that, like the respiratory stuff and like having trouble breathing and all these things like that. It's just like, I, I still have some lasting effects from it. Actually, um, it had some weird lasting um, holdover effects. Like I uh, developed, uh, I started developing carpal tunnel in my, uh, in my hands, which started during COVID. Like my body wow. started having a bunch of weird reactions. Um, my girlfriend, um, she has permanent, um, permanent damage in her knee from it. Um, cause, uh, a bunch of nerves and things got damaged when she had it. Um, it's kind of, it's terrifying. Cause like they're, oh, they're finding in a lot of people, all these little leftover medical conditions and problems that happen during it. And yeah, it's, it's rough. It's, uh, <laughs> that's why I'm got vaccinated. Like as soon as I could, um, it's it's no joke. I'm I'm you're a smart cookie. I'm assuming you're vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. got va- uh, vaccinated. I got my second my second round of shots like a week 
a week ago. And, and so I'm rooming with my brother and as soon mm-hmm. as like pandemic hit like March, mid March of last, of last year, I personally, for me, if it, I'm really grateful for my brother, he's a, an, an inventor and a scientist. Mm-hmm. And so, and so when pandemic hit, I was like, I remember feeling disorientated and was like, what do I do? But luckily, yeah. like my brother, just being my brother, uh, we had a, a a family meeting or house or house meeting, and yeah. we just really talked about like looking at our at our living quarters and what we can what we can do because um, he he comes from like over twenty years of semiconductor experience and working in a, mm-hmm. in a lab and following lab protocols, safety, yeah. cleaning. So he just like applied all that knowledge to COVID in our house and just nice. how our house is set, how our house is set up. Um, our, our front door, it's a, it's a, it's a three story, like kind of a condo townhouse. But um, when you at the front door at the front entrance is a stairs, it's immediate stairs. There's no place to go, but, but up. So it's kind of like our, um, exit and entryway is very like isolated okay. anyway and so at the foot of the stairs is a closet so that's like our closet for outdoor gear like our shoes um jackets and, and our masks and a sanita- sanitation like like area and then we also have mm-hmm. a half bathroom so our half bathroom is the decontamination washing your hands in that okay. area rather than the, the kitchen sink where we cook food so okay. that that area is our is our COVID decon- decontamination kind of like like area. He also got like sticky mats um, when we go outside. Like a sticky mat um, gets like as you walk on it, it takes it gets the bigger po- particles off. Oh, off I see. Your shoe. I see. You know, like a sticky I see mat. What you mean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Go Oh, no, no, no. So we like we have that. So we so like that's our that's our setup. Then we have like uh, alcohol wipes. And so that's what we were. We probably like more stricter. Like, I don't know what other households were doing that, but we were pretty adamant on like no, no people coming over, not even our own family, no people coming over, no traveling and uh, work from work from home and be adamant about working from home and i'm a contract i actually lost my job during the pandemic i was at i was at nike contracting with mm-hmm. them and they let me go in july of of last year and then the job heart search was bitch it was challenging at first it still is because like employers were just not getting the whole work from home it's like no i'm working from home yeah and and then just like be be adamant about that, and so yeah. And, oh, well, yeah, it's, okay. it's it's weird. Like I um because I was performing full time, so it's like so kind of I lost my job last year, I guess, because like all my road dates and stuff got canceled. It was mm-hmm. uh yeah, it was like literally I was about to like go and start doing shows out of town, and then they shut everything down, and it was just like. It was it was crazy because I um I, I was lucky I I got some good advice from an older uh, headliner friend of mine who said like 
always put a little bit of money aside from every gig you do because something's going to happen and you're going to be stuck without shows. Cause he learned that when nine 11 happened, when all the, all his road dates got canceled because of nine 11, mm. that's when he learned that lesson. So he had put that in my head maybe 10 years ago. And thankfully I had like prepared a little bit for this, but like, you know, it's weird. I've done a couple shows now, but I went a solid year without being on stage, which is insane to me because I've been doing stand up since I was 17. Yeah. I am a pretty useless member of society is what I found out. <laughs> when you take stand up away, there's like, oh, I have no skills that matter when the power goes out. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> How did you so you um so you put a little bit a little bit away and just to like back backtrack little yeah. um a little bit we we could I'm I'm curious about this this story. So when I first met you you were single and yeah. now you did mention you have a son and a yeah. girlfriend. It's like, "Oh my god, you're a dad." <laughs> I know. I'm so over it. Like I really enjoyed being a dad and now I've spent the last like year and a half enclosed in a house with my son and the fact that I haven't gone full shining on him is amazing to me. Uh, <laughs> like I haven't watched I, I haven't watched he's six years old so I haven't watched an R-rated movie in the daylight in a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it, it, it's so it's it's nuts because like he's there he's like I used to have like when he would go to like preschool and things like that I had my mornings to myself like he'd go off to school and then I'd be, I could have a cup of coffee and breakfast, do some writing, whatever I was working on. And now he's just there. He's just, he, and he doesn't go away. You can't send him anywhere because they know he belongs to me. So if something happens, it's on me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's no, and like, it's funny because I think about when me and you grew up, like they just know, just get out of the house, go do whatever. Our parents didn't care. And now I like, I'm acutely aware of how terrifying the world is. So now I have to like, you know, I'm always like, I'm always consciously aware of everything and all the horrible things that could happen to him. Like we, uh, this week I installed an above ground pool in our backyard because it's uh, insanely hot and like, it would be great for him. But I realized, Oh, if he's in the pool, I have to watch him in the pool because he could drown. Like <laughs> there's like four, like for every, nice thing I do for my child, there's four horrible potential things that could go bad. Like yeah. that I have to like think about and realize. Yeah. <laughs> and like when I think about how many house plants I've killed over the years and this child has made it to six years old is amazing to me. <laughs> how did you um meet your girlfriend? Um me and my girlfriend, um she's a she's a stage actress in the uh, theater community in the Bay Area. So we met, uh, she was doing a show with a few friends of mine and I met her during that. She was in a production of The Full Monty with uh, Contra Costa Musical Theater about mm-hmm. five years ago. I actually, she's, um, she's actually not my, my son's biological mother. Um, she's his, um, I mean, I guess not on paper, but like for all intents and purposes, her stepmom, because we've mm-hmm. been together for a long time. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, they're they have a great relationship and we're a nice little family unit now and all that. And, but we were really close. We got together when he was, I think my son was a year and a half because we got, um, cause I got divorced from his biological mother um, in oh. 20. Yeah. 
Okay, so that road, that's, yeah. that, that, I don't know how how much details that you want to get. Like, this is new to me because okay. I thought I thought your girlfriend was the mom, but like, oh, you were okay. You were married. How'd that happen? Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I love the phrasing of that. Oh, you got married. So how did that happen? That was weird. Because you look so unappealing, so I don't understand how that could have worked. Um, no, that's not what I meant. I was like, no, I'm trying to catch. I'm trying to catch up. Uh, I knew um, you as a single, a single dude living the bachelor life. <laughs> yeah, just my, just that swinging bachelor, Greg as Dorian. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. It's like for all the comics we know that we're always like out chasing women and like doing reckless stuff. My life has been pretty vanilla. Like I was pretty mellow. Like. You know, like, I, I didn't screw around a lot. I never, like, I was never the big partier or anything like that. And I think part of it is because I was so much younger than a lot of the comedians we met. Because I started doing it when I was 17. So, like, I didn't have a, you know, I couldn't, like, go drinking or whatever or any of that stuff. And I think that's part of why I ended up being a lot more mellow than a lot of the other comics we know. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, as for how how I got married, um, uh <laughs> I got, um, well, I, I, I took all my good ideas and careful planning and I ignored all of it. And I decided to settle down <laughs> with, uh, with someone I shouldn't have, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Me and my ex-wife, uh, we, I picked her up at a show, which is already like strike one. It's already a bad idea. She was actually hitting on a different comic at the bar and I like swooped in and I'm very proud of that. Because I swooped her away from a comedian who's much prettier than I am. <laughs> Funny. And um, oh. yeah, it was just we met and we we dated for a while. And the problem is, is that uh, she, when we got married, we had, we'd actually eloped. We had this kind of we we had gotten engaged and then we just decided to just elope. We had a friend of mine who was an ordained efficient, just do it. And we eloped and it was great. And I thought it was going to be happily ever after and all that stuff. And shortly after we got married, she got pregnant, like almost immediately after. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem is, is that, uh, you know, she it turns out she was hiding uh, a few personal problems for me that I never knew about until we got, until our lives ended up more entangled. Um, Mm. She, um, she had some problems with addiction and uh, as a result, she ended up being abusive um, both emotionally and physically. Uh, I got hit with a golf club once. That was fun. Oh my God. Yeah. The only thing I have in common with Tiger Woods is we both got hit by a Scandinavian blonde with a golf club. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god oh wow scary yeah. yeah so i uh in california i was awarded full legal and physical custody of my son from a female judge which is almost unheard of which i feel that, like a picture about my ex-wife that is rare because usually yeah. it's like courts where the family court would give like the mom a chance it yeah. has to be pretty like pretty significant to get like full custody. I mean, yeah. maybe there's some bias biases in there in the legal bias. 
I mean, I think there's always like kind of an inherent bias towards like mothers, I think, Mm -hmm. which is fair. I mean, statistically, men are terrible. I get it. Like, I completely (laughs) understand that. Um, But I, um, you know, I'm I'm mediocre at a lot of things. It turns out I'm a pretty good dad. But uh, she actually... um, my ex-wife, after we split up and after I got custody of my son, she actually, she dipped out. She, she stopped being in his life. Uh, wow. So it was just me and him. And, um, you know, shortly after that, me and Christina met. And um, turns out I'm, uh, I don't know what it is, just no ring and having a baby in a stroller with you just, just gets all that kind of attention from women, I guess. But... <laughs> yeah yeah i could i could i could imagine (laughs) how i mean did you did you in like was there a time between the divorce and the time that you met your girlfriend like you had some time to your to yourself just you know you and your son and yeah i mean like this is it like i'm a single dad yeah i kind of just like there's a um there's a joke that always uh, rang true to me that was uh, uh, Matt Gubser, a friend of both of ours. Um, he had a joke where he talks about how he was a single divorced dad of three daughters with good hair. So he's all three dads from Full House in one person. <laughs> and like I, that joke always like just stuck in my head after I got... Uh, custody of my son and it was just it was it's funny because like there was there was a little bit of time to myself but mostly like me and Christina had started dating and all of a sudden I had full custody of Oliver so kind of like me and her were still pretty early in our relationship and suddenly you know I have a son that's in my life full time so if you want to be part of this ride you can be if you don't want to be I understand like I, I I remember giving her that option. I gave her the out because it's a lot to, it's a lot to ask of somebody. And um, thankfully, my kid is just as charming as I am, apparently. <laughs> and uh, they just immediately fell in love with each other. And she's great. She is um, my, my girlfriend's an amazing mom. She, uh, she's great. And it's, uh, it's funny, like he's become such a part of, her family now too, because we've gotten really close with her folks and her family. And there was kind of, there was kind of this adorable moment. Uh, my girlfriend's sister just became an aunt. Her, her sister just had a baby a few weeks ago. And so apparently somebody asked uh, uh, Christina's mother, like, Oh, are you excited that you're going to finally have a real grandson? She's like, what do you mean? I already have a grandson. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And it was this really kind of sweet moment. And uh, which is great because I'm pretty sure they're uh, that her husband hates my girlfriend said, hates me so much, <laughs> which I get it. Divorced comedian with a child. Like I get it. Like I don't, I wouldn't want my daughter with me either. <laughs> I mean, I, is that the reason because like the, fi- the finances, because you're like, you're a decent human. Like, you know, Oh, I am. Yeah. That's what, that's <laughs> why the mom likes me. Her mom likes me because I'm a decent person. Um, her, her father is uh, is a, a medical malpractice attorney, so okay. he's like a much more like critical by the numbers person. And mm-hmm. what's funny is that we have a, we actually have a ton in common. Like we both have a lot of the same interests. Like we both 
love fishing and stuff like, and photography and things like that. And like, so for the first like two years, me and Christina were together, he went out of his way to not be friends with me. Cause we, if, he knew that if we started talking, we'd immediately get along. <laughs> so he like purposely like, didn't like talk to me. And like, it was, it was just pretty funny. Like the amount of effort he put into not wanting to like have a personal relationship with me was kind of impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess accepting people is pretty hard for some. <laughs> I get that. I mean, I again, I totally get it, and I, um, I'm not someone who has lived in a li- lived in a world where I have to prove myself to anybody. If I mm-hmm. wanted like validation, I wouldn't be a comedian. Comedian is a lifetime of rejection. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Do you um do you remember like the first time you like like just like painfully bombed like where it like it like hurt like on the inside like it was just such a bad like bad set? Yeah. Oh, I have like quite a few. Quite a few of those. <laughs> yeah, we all do. Not wasn't wasn't just one. Yeah. I don't know. I think I've been bombing since I like I started. I've had some good sets. And then um something happened. Well, some I I've talked about this in other in other episodes, but basically, I mean, like, it was like a slow decline on on me performing. I think it was uh, the decline started happening in the uh, the two thousand eight financial crash. Okay. I remember distinctly that when that happened, my state like getting stage time uh, declined because I was also doing the day like the day job, yeah, like, like thing. So, um, and then, and then I've been a career contractor for the last 13 years. So I get like a new job, like, like every three, three to six months. And then that interim is, is, was also difficult because what I wasn't doing, I wasn't aggressively saving for my contract, like, like gigs. So I was, I was always like toggling between, um, getting a job, not get not having a job, um, getting on unemployment. I've also been on food food stamps, but it was during that time of like that financial crisis, and you know I do I'm, I'm do accounting like account accounts payable mm-hmm. in in San Francisco, so like they weren't hiring. They were only they only wanted contractors. They didn't want to like yeah. like hire hire people. So I was like, okay, I'll just go where the work is and do do contracting, and then. Um, and San Francisco is like expensive, so all my money went went towards like food, food and rent, yeah. and and so that was happening, and then got into recovery in two thousand and five, um, two thousand and six. I started taking classes at the San Francisco Comedy College, okay. and and then around like twenty eleven, I was like um, working on jokes of growing up in an alcoholic home, and then testing out that material within my own recovery community. And then on the friends, okay, here's some context. On the friends and family side, um, laughing about the family disease of alcoholism is like a foreign concept. Mm-hmm. And and like nothing's funny. But like I'll do the same, I'll do my jokes at like AA audiences or NA audiences or like, re- like recovering addict alcoholic like kind of audience and they like love it it's like laughs like they're ready to laugh 
mm-hmm. and like on the friends and family side like uh not not so much so like my my comedy was like getting me in trouble <laughs> and and like and, and plus i'm also dealing with people that they've never been to open mics or comedy shows so yeah. i'm like their first i'm like their first exposure to to comedy and i was like quote unquote too much yeah did your did your family grow up in the united states yeah okay yeah i'm i'm third generation Okay, see, both of my parents grew up in third world countries. <laughs> my mother grew up in El Salvador, and my father grew up in Beirut. And they neither—they both met at City College of San Francisco randomly. They both moved to America in their teens. And so it's funny, like, my father completely leaned hard into American culture. He loved it. He loved, he loved comedy. That's why I got exposed to it at a really young age. I grew up listening to... Dangerfield and Carlin and he had, he had this great collection of like comedians on vinyl. Um, that's why all my influences are dead now. And everybody I appeal to is too old to leave the house. Um, <laughs> but my mother completely the opposite. She is still a very hardcore, not like politically conservative, but like socially and judgmentally conservative Christian. Mm-hmm. So like it's it, my mother like she she every time she hears like a new joke or reads something I posted on Facebook it's just like you shouldn't talk about that you're gonna go to hell yeah. if you keep telling jokes like that and I always tell her like you know it's like well if 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 I'm wrong and you're right you win I go to hell and that's not what she wants to hear either because <laughs> <laughs> like I actually grew up in the church like pretty hardcore and. Mm. There's like there was like a whole string of guys in my age group, and they all went to seminary except for me, mm-hmm. which is something my mother likes to bring up all the time. She's like, "You're <laughs> such a good speaker. You're great in front of a crowd. You should come to seminary." I'm like, uh, "I don't know. <laughs> I, I like I like traveling and talking to like weirdos and you know the people and because comedy crowds are a specific feat. It's not." It's not like it's not like doing a. Let's not, that's why the comics who do the more motivational speaking stuff. I'm just like I'm impressed by that, but I could never do it. That's not how. That's not how my presentation, my show works. My show is more about like, man, this sucks, but you know, at least we're still here. Like that's kind of the theme of everything <laughs> I do. It's not like this is why things are better than you think. It's like. No, let's all just embrace the reality that this sucks and we'll move on to something. <laughs> and it's it, it just it it's so it's so funny to me because one of my best friends from that era in my life is an ordained Protestant minister now, and we're very good friends still. We still talk all the time, and uh, we have heated arguments about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's so funny because like he would have been a great comic if he wanted to. He had that skill set, um, you know, but. I don't know, who knows? I guess I guess working for the Lord has better benefits. Who knows? <laughs> working for the Lord. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I, I do. I mean, I, I've I it's it's a spiritual experience experience like doing comedy. Like I'm pretty sure like Jesus was a comedian. He had to be. Like you can't <laughs> just go up in front of strangers and claim you're you're the son of God without like a few jokes to start off get them warmed yeah. up yeah. and then I think like Jesus was, he was more like an 80s comedy magician <laughs> <laughs> I, can I can see that that's true 
You know what it is? The biblical 80s. (laughs) The biblical 80s. Um, It's funny because, like, I grew up in the church and, like, I had really, like, passively conservative views about a lot of things. But I was always a performer. I started doing theater when I was really young. I started doing theater when I was 12. And um, and then I went to college and I studied film and musical theater. And it's like, oh, wow, gay people are way nicer than Christians. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, I kind of had that epiphany. And what's funny is that when I was in college, I was in college at the same time. It was me, Mark Abrigo, and Joseph Annalyn. We were all at SF State at the same time. So we all kind oh, of started wow. performing together at the same time. So I've known those guys forever, all great Bay Area comedians. And um, yeah, it's it's just so funny. Like I kind of like had that epiphany about like all these like pe- all these social groups and like types of people that I've been programmed in throughout my childhood to think that like are, you know, malevolent and bad because of the way they live their lives. And I'm just like, no. Maybe maybe I'm better off just not being a judgmental asshole and just being friends with whoever. Do you um what's your what's your spirituality looking nowadays? Um well when I play poker, the card protector I use is a little Thor's hammer. I think that's about <laughs> as spiritual as I get at this point. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. That's cool. <laughs> when when did you stop going to church? I stopped at twelve. Um, I think it was nineteen, like around there. It was before I wasn't twenty one yet. I had just started doing stand up. I was in college. I think that was it. I think that I think it was around nineteen. Um, I that's when I had that kind of that epiphany about uh about uh about when I had that moment where I realized the things I had been taught as a child and throughout my life. Oh, these adults are just, they're just like me. They're other adults that might not know what the hell they're talking about. You know, okay. I kind of had that epiphany. It's just like, I, I, I get it. Like a church is amazing. The pageantry of it, like the costumes, <laughs> it puts until I found musical theater, it pushed all those musical musical theater buttons for me. but then when i found the theater program at ss state and a few other places it's like oh well i can do all this without the judgmental bullshit this sounds great (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so this as i i'm naming this episode gentleman on on a budget and and um in catching up with you and and listening to you talk about your current relationship and and your past relationship um how how has your experience with the concept of a gentleman has changed through those relationships you know what it's my understanding of one gentleman has changed a lot especially since my divorce um because what i used to think um back when i was like in my like early 20s and like in my teens, I used to think a gentleman was someone who gave all of themselves to people mm-hmm. and like who tried to like overextend themselves to show how much people mattered to them. And I realized that that's kind of toxic and unhealthy. 
um, now. Cause I realized like when I was married, when I got divorced, like I was giving all of myself to take care of someone who was emotionally abusing me the whole time. That's not a gentleman. That's a victim. And I realized that there's a fine line between those two things. I think a gentleman fundamentally now is, um, is someone who, who treats someone with the respect that they themselves are also treating themselves with. Um, I think that, I think people always say like things like chivalry or dead. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think chivalry and concepts like that have evolved. I think that there's no one, no one needs you to ride in on a white horse anymore. That's not a thing, but you know what? Maybe not be uh, a toxic masculine douchebag. That's probably nice. I, <laughs> you know, I was, I was raised by feminist comedians and, you know, gay theater kids. So I think that affected my outlook on things a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause like I, um, I've never been good. I've never been good at flirting, but I've always been charming. I've always been good at getting people to like me. And in my like teens and my twenties, that just meant I was that like guy who had the string of like dozens of female friends who never knew how to seal the deal. He's just that likable little brother type. That's what I was. And <laughs> it's so funny because, and you can vouch for this, anybody who's been around comedians can vouch for this. Sometimes you watch people who are just terrible human beings do so well with women and it blows my mind. <laughs> like, I just like, I can't believe it. Like I've got some, and some of, some of them are friends of mine and I, I won't name names, but like, I know some guys that are just completely toxic to women and like they do so well. And it's tr- I can't believe it. I'm like, really? But I'll help you move. Like, won't that? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking conundrum paradox. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have some names in mind and I've also been, I've, I've been that woman of just like, like yeah, like I'm thinking of this one particular particular person, and um, yeah, he got around for sure. For sure, he got around. And was he handsome? Yeah, sure, he was handsome. Is he like six four? Is it who I'm thinking? Of? No, don't don't even <laughs> guess. Don't even try to guess. <laughs> don't even try to guess, because it's probably not the person that you're you're thinking. I'm just thinking about this one particular. Um, like guy and yeah like toxic as fuck but i i certainly participated participated in the toxicity and a lot of that was like the examples that i grew up with on on male male behavior male treatment towards females ladies or or girls and it was just like you know violence was just so normalized and the old type all kinds of violence, the emotional violence, the physical violence. Yeah. All the, the like, all the like, like romantic, like sex comedies and stuff that we used to watch when we were like kids, like, you know, like all the John Hughes stuff. It's like, yeah, there's some like moral points to them. And there's like an overall, overall moral story to it, but they had all these toxic characters that were just like, you know, violent, rapey, creepy people that like, and it normalized, that stuff it's like it's awful yeah the, like john hughes i love and I, and like at the time like i love i loved his movies and 
you know, since, you know, since the uprise of like me, me too, times up and, and, and like the social movement, but I'm, I'm also seeing, seeing a trend and shift on, um, narrative content narrative, like, you know, okay, I was, like, a huge Sex and the City fan. Now it's problematic. Now it's, prob- like, problem problematic. But I'm liking, I'm liking shows on, on HBO, um, I May Destroy You, that, that mm-hmm. one show on HBO called, called I May Destroy You, and it talks, yeah. about, it talks about consent. Like, she gets raped. Mm-hmm. She gets roofied and raped, but she doesn't rem- remember. But throughout the ep- episodes, um, she's piecing back the timeline and and but this whole the whole arc and narr- the whole show is basically about what is consent what is consent and not only is she recovering from being raped from roofied she also has other encounters with a guy who takes off the condom while they're having sh- sex <laughs> and without her knowing so it's like trauma after trauma whereas like whereas before you you, you I would never see like content before like like that like like and it just brings a whole like dialogue and conversation on on what what is consent and this isn't about like um right or wrong or like oh I can't give compliments to women anymore it's like no how about fucking ask like ask like can yeah. I give you a compliment cuz even compliments are triggering I'm finding yeah. I'm I'm finding where you know I'm talking to people who have experienced sexual trauma and they would get compliments from the predator. So anytime they receive compliments it's triggering. So it's like hey can I give you a, it's like ask and then it's like yes or no and whatever the answer is like accept it because you don't know where that person has gone has yeah. been through. Like, I remember there was a, um, <laughs> it's funny, like, at two different points in my life, there were rumors about me in the comedy scene in San Francisco, and they're dramatically different ones, but, like, at one time, it was, I had been dating a female comic, and other comics found out about it, and one of them made a joke to her about it, and she panicked. And told me, told everybody I made it up that me and her had never dated or anything like that. And that was in like my early 20s. I had this like weird, chaotic summer because all these people were thinking I'm some guy who lies about the women he dates and stuff like that. Oh my God. Yeah, it was horrible. I was like 24 or something. And it was like, it was awful. It was this whole, and, and it happened again actually after my divorce because after I won full custody of my son somebody started spreading a rumor that the reason me and my wife split up is because I was physically assaulting her and that I was uh, abusive to her. And I don't know where that started. I have a hunch with which, com- I, I know which comics said it out loud to people, but it became like a reputation for about, I had for a while and I had to like fight to get out of it. Like overnight, like 30% of the female comics that I was friends with on Facebook had like unfriended me and I didn't know why. I didn't know what was going on. And then wow. a few comics who knew the truth, who knew what I'd actually been through with my son and been through with my divorce, told me what was going on. Um, and it came back to me, like people who knew that this is the person I was 
And they said, like, yeah, we I've defended you to anybody who will listen, but, like, someone started a rumor that, like, the reason you and your wife split up is because you're beating her up. And I'm like, if that was the truth, how would I have full custody of our child? Like, how would all these things, like, yeah, I, it took me a while to, like, fight under out of that. Like, it was, I've dealt with that, those kind of things a couple times, and it's just, like, I can't imagine, like, I know women that have been through things that are infinitely worse than that too. It's like, you know, I have friends that have been, I have friends that have been assaulted by other comedians, you know, both physically and sexually and like they, but, and they get turned into these like topics of gossip when they're, when we should be like helping these people. And like, it's, yeah, it's just, I, I'm rambling now, but it's just like, it, ama- it amazes me how easily people will do toxic things without realizing how toxic their behavior is. Mm-hmm. I know. I, especially in the comedy community, I, community, I have been like, you know, just reading, reading about reports and experiences and, and whatnot. And it's like, um, well, I do under like my my observation is where uh, the court system sucks when trying to get like justice from sexual yeah. trauma. And actually, r- there currently there there is no legal definition of a consent. I had to watch like a TED Talk video on like really? what is consent. Yeah, there is That's no really legal upsetting. Defi- there is no legal definition of of consent. And that came out when the the Cosby trials was coming on, was around. Because, and I don't know, it was like the prosecutor, lawyer, like, don't, listeners, don't quote me. This is just like, I'm totally like paraphrasing. But the judge was asked, like, what, or either the judge was asking the lawyer or the lawyer asked the judge. But anyway, the question was asked in this court, like, what's your definition of consent? And they couldn't answer it. There couldn't. There is no legal definition of consent, and that's what I think. Because there's no legal definition of consent, um, implicit biases or confirmed biases or biases are shaping like legal opinion because there's no legal definition of of consent. That is a really scary thought. Yeah, which explains like. I mean, it totally makes sense for me because where where are you going to find justice? It's like I'm fine. People are getting their justice on sh- on social media. The doxing, the mm-hmm. the doxing, the reporting, the the sharing of screenshots. Where on some level it mu- like does it make it worse? Maybe, but it's like you know where 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 is a person going to get justice? Like, hey, I got the receipts. Like, look at this. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. It's um. It's interesting the doxing thing because like it's when it's done when it's used well it's 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 powerful and it's funny it's like that's actually how I was able to prove um, that the rumor about me being um, someone abusive actually because like some people tried to dox me and they tried to look up information about this and when they looked up the information they realized that it was just a rumor that there was no there was no evidence of anything there was no uh there was no like you know i never got arrested i never got like charged like nothing happened it was all just a story um and they actually found out because i had been assaulted by mike's wife there was evidence of that because we i did call the police there are these all these things that happened and uh 
it's funny. Like I've tried, I've, there's still a handful of friends that I've lost because of that rumor that I really wish I still had in my life. A couple mm-hmm. of comedians that were close friends of mine. Uh, and it always bumps me out. Cause like eventually like it'll come back to me from other people like, Oh, this person, you know, they stopped talking to you because they heard this thing about you. I'm like, well, they never actually asked me about it. And I'd actually talk to them about it. It's always a bummer. Um, yeah, that like that's that's the thing. I mean, I've definitely ha- ha- had a situation. Well, okay. Well, my my because my comedy was getting. Well, I hate to use the words like in trouble. Like people within my recovery community wasn't like liking my stand up. And I did this one show where it was a. It's it's not it's not a, it's a conference where teenage teenagers in recovery like like go and there's adult adults there. And, um, so I did a joke on cutting and, and cutting is, is cutting is like, um, a a coping, uh, like a coping mechanism where, Hey, if you're not drinking, um, if, if they're not alcoholic, they don't have that allergy of the body to make them alcoholic. And, Mm. and, um, so they cut their, and, to know it's like uh, like a coping it's a coping mechanism it's self-harm it's a thing it's a th- it's a it's a thing within like the teenage recovery like community and though personally in my experience like I don't have that experience I just have my my observations but I've done like self-harm in terms of like um, putting myself down like emotional cutting where I'll I'll do I'll do it myself but like you know, I it's not like an actual razor blade, but it's like my own self of like emotional cutting. So I wrote this joke about cutting, and I've never said it in front of like an, like a regular audience, but I did the joke for the first time in front of this audience. It totally bombed, and um, I'm like, okay, whatever. And um, the next morning, it was like our talent show that we did. The next morning, like everyone's mad. I'm like, what's going on? Um, turns out, like one of the the teen chaperones, like one of the sh- uh, the adult chaperones, who who um, complained, or no, he like he like um, like yeah, he complained he he complained and turned it into a thing, like turned it into a thing that I was being abusive, and and this particular person has like a lot of clout and influence. Okay. And um, been a chaperone for a lot longer than than I have, and they believed him. They believed him, and then didn't talk to me. So my my like chaperone status got got revoked because people were just believing the story. And then yeah. one of my friends that I confided like to, uh, you know, she wasn't there. She wasn't at the conference. She's just like hearing it from from me. But apparently, you know, it get it got out. Like it gets out. We're a small like, community. Yeah. Like rumors, rumors were spreading. Yeah, rumors were spreading all over the place. Like I was this like abusive person and did did a. It was like totally. It was blown. It was blown out of proportion. That's what I'm trying to trying yeah. to say. It was completely blown out of propo- proportion. And my friend um, decided to believe the rumor. Even though she was getting the story from me, she still like decided to believe the the rumor. And I'm like, okay, we're not friends anymore. Yeah, we're I mean, not that, friends anymore. 
that's it's it's awful when that happens because like when people if people care about you they should take the time just to confirm something they hear and it's it's rough like that the rumor about me got me cost me a job in a writer's room because like that's somebody crazy somebody who was in that writer's room already had heard this rumor about me and told everyone about it and cost me that cost me a gig a writing gig so it's like it's just if people take the time to do their research on a rumor like the so much so much like bs and pain can get avoided and it's unfortunate when things like that have real world consequences it's like you think that when you grow up and you become an adult that you don't have to worry about people making up stories about you anymore like you think that's just a childish thing and like you know like people tattling on you for crap that isn't true you think all that's in your past and then you realize like oh there's still so many people who never grew out of that kind of behavior and are you know willing to just say whatever without worrying about any consequences to it it's infuriating yeah with my particular joke some some people got it like some people got it and even if some of the teenagers didn't think it was funny like, cause some teenagers just didn't. They didn't think it was funny, but not to the point of like, oh, we gotta uh, re- remove her as a chaperone and do this, do this thing. And um, oh, and then I later find out it was like a setup. Like the person eventually did make public public amends for treating me badly, and and like it was hard for me to even like fathom. Like, wow, really a setup? Like he like knew he has this influence and caused a caused a ruckus caused like caused more harm than just letting a joke bomb just letting a joke bomb and then we go on with our lives but no it was like an eight month battle of like 200 emails it was just like ridiculous it was just so so ridiculous and um so so I stopped doing comedy during that time. It was, a, it was like emotionally draining because I, uh, I was putting so much time and effort to just like clear my name that no. it's like, fuck this. Like, no, I'm not. And like, it, you know, some of the people in the recovery community would come up to me like, hey, are you going to do like comedy? I'm like, no, not, not with you. No. Like, no, you don't know no. how to handle it. Like, I'm very like, I'm very a lot more selective and protective and I know with me if I do if I do get booked like specifically within the recovery community that I am uh, that I'm in I just let them know that I'm 18 and over I'm rated R it is not for kids um see I say just fuck them just lean into it hard like the next flyer for your show for them it just says the word comedy carved into someone's arm just just lean into it hard <laughs> just just to teach him a lesson oh my god i love that i love that yeah i could probably do something on adobe photoshop to make it like more bloody not like an actual like cut comedy i'm like oh, that's funny <laughs> Yeah, but I think it just goes to show you, like my my recovery community has a long way to go when it comes to like laughing laughing about the family disease of alcoholism. Like, yeah, it's it's not funny, but it's like you know you gotta gotta start somewhere because yeah. I mean I I'm, I'm sorry, go 
No, I, I was, was like, I was... <laughs> <laughs> no, because right, I know for a two, fact. Three. Okay, you go, you go. Um, it, it's just funny because I was, uh, I did kind of something similar to what you did and uh, the sense of like, when I first started doing stand up, my, all of my jokes were like, Hey, I'm fat and this is awkward, isn't it? And like, there was no substance to it. It was just me putting myself down for fucking the entertainment of like strangers. And like, I was so unhealthy and like, it definitely fed and contributed to my depression and a bunch of other stuff. And like, now, like I kind of have this rule now is that it has to be a really fucking good fat joke for me to still do it on stage. <laughs> like, it has to be just, like, an impressively clever fat joke for me to do it. Because I'm just kind of over that. It just, like... Because, like, I, I had one of my mentors was a great comic named John Panette, and who I got to open for a bunch. And he was a big dude, too. He was way bigger than I was, even. And it's, he talked about his weight a lot, but he talked about it in such a smart, ingenious way that you never thought of it as him putting himself down. It was about him being self-aware and him talking about how people treat people that look like him. Mm. And like, that's kind of where I try to go now with my sense of humor is I like kind of pointing out how shitty people are for treating people who are different, you know, in poor ways. I kind of try to go that route. You know, I don't always hit the mark, but I'm trying. Um, but yeah, no, when you're comic and you're putting yourself down and you justify it by it being funny, it's like, that only goes so far. Eventually it starts hurting you. Mm-hmm. I've never been one to like, for myself, I don't try, go dep- deprecating, deprecating humor to that, to that level. I think like with, in, and combined with the with the recovery, like, you know, my goal is to find that balance between like uh, finding punchlines in, in the trauma. And I've been doing that since like 20, 2011. And and I want, but it's also a challenge within my own recovery community where where either people aren't there, they're not ready, they're not ready to laugh, they don't know how to laugh. Uh, my recovery community doesn't really have like resources or books that deep dive into getting back your sense of humor. And, and the books that I use within the fellowship that I'm in, like I have basically almost all of them, but if I go in the index, if I look under humor, there's like a couple, like a couple of re- like references. There's there's no work workbook like a humor wor- like workbook or a humor like inventory. And unless you're a comedian, but like yeah. like me, been I'm like trained, like you know, studied with Curtis Matthews. I've you know <sighs> did did like there was a there was a good run of like two years of just me doing like straight open mics and getting on shows and like doing the deal and no and I come across people within my recovery community they look at me like I have two heads like what do you what's an open mic like like it's like that like what's an open mic what's a comedy show it's funny what you say about like the recovery community it reminds me of an old joke and it's uh an American comedian is performing in Germany and he does well he kills the crowd loves him 
And this German guy goes up to him after the show and says, you're amazing. Why don't comedians, why don't we have any comedians like you here in Germany? I'm like, well, it's because you killed them all. <laughs> and <laughs> I feel like Dark. it's the same thing you're saying. Yeah. But it's, I feel like it's the same thing you're saying. It's just like, you're never going to have good comedians with this perspective on recovery because you won't let them be comedians. You won't let them work out what they want to work out on stage. You're just punishing them for having this thought. And that doesn't do anything. When you, when you punish people for what their emotions are, wor worst case scenario, you're going to send them back towards whatever their demon that they're trying to get past is. And best case scenario, you just have an entire organization of people in recovery that can't laugh at themselves. And that is just destructive in a whole other way. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm the lone trailblazer. Well, I'm not the only one. There's like a couple, couple of them. Because it's, it's rare. It is rare to find comedian from the friends and family perspective. Like my mentors in this realm of recovery comedy they're they're recovering addicts and alcoholics themselves like those are the people i turn to for advice and and you know and advice and connection and they know what i'm talking about so it's yeah. it's 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 lonely like this aspect of of my recovery it's it's low it's lonely um but you know at least i do have people like mentors in the recovery community that I can go to. Like I would love to have like I know one, I know one person <laughs> in the in the recovery like friends and family comedian. Yeah, no, I've never I've never been through that. I've never been through this process, so I'm kind of curious like and if it's you know, we can edit this if it's too too much of a question, but what's that been like during COVID with like a purposeful and constant disconnection from the outside world? How does that affect you when you're in recovery? Mm -hmm. No, that's a really great question. Like when pandemic hit, um, there, there's been, there has been like a lot of relapses since like COVID hit. Cause it's like, you know, um, isolation is part is part of the disease, and yeah. and shelter in place is not isolation. But shelter in place can be can easily blend into isolation, yeah. where like, uh, and then for me, for for me, like I like I like my I like my solitude. But my and there's nothing wrong with solitude, but my solitude can easily blend into isolation and I don't even know it. It'll sneak up on me like, oh, I haven't. And I don't I don't have I don't go to in-person meetings like all my all my meetings are, are online. So I've been doing I've been doing like on online meetings and I was doing online meetings a little bit for the first time, like pre COVID, like I've heard of them. I've heard of them and I've, and I, and I've been, I'm like, Oh, this is great. Like, I love this. I don't have to leave. <laughs> so again, it's like, so again, it's like my solitude could go like, Oh, I don't, I don't need to leave my house. Uh, my solitude could, 
go into like isolation, but at the same time, it's like, I'm still active. Like I'm still active in my recovery community, community in the, the, in, on the digital front as, as well. And then, you know, with the outreach that I do talking to like newcomers from the friends and family, like, like side, it's, it's, um, very scary. Uh, cause, cause now I, it's like, um, the people who are looking for support, they're in shelter in place with active alcoholism and active ad- addiction. Okay. So like, you know, what you were talking about with your ex-wife and, you know, she hit you with a golf club. Like just picture that while you're still in COVID, still in pandemic. I think so that's like, literally the shining is what you just described. <laughs> yeah, it's the shining. It's the shining. It's it's like it's crazy it's it's really insane and it's like you know covid combined with the family disease of alcoholism is is no joke because like now you have like like not not being mindful of safety protocols and i'm dealing with with active alcoholism it's like like double double because because at the end of the day all work and no play makes jack a dull boy (laughs) yeah so so it's um it hasn't been easy it has i know i know it hasn't been easy when i talk to to my friends and 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 others um but because of i know because of covid because of covid there has been changes and acceptance of of now because before before covid it was the the approach was that on online meetings were a supplement they weren't like real like meetings yeah okay got it uh, but now because of covid like it it's it's equal so yeah. it's not considered a comp a like like a uh, supplement anymore. So I know because because of pandemic, because of COVID, the recovery community is changing. Um, is changing for sure. Do you think so, that's good or bad? Do you think it's changing in positive ways? Or? Mm, the the changes that I've seen have been positive and not only positive but like a game changer, like significantly, like a significant like uh, like game changer. I know for me, like because of COVID people of color recovery meetings are able to thrive because before um before covid like yeah there are people there were people of color like in-person meetings but like as as like it was always weird like what i what i gathered when it came to uh person of color focus meetings was like people got really sensitive of like over it and and you know, there's women's meetings, there's men's meetings, there's LGBT meetings. But when it came to person of color, like suddenly everyone's like butts just started clenching, really sensitive. And but because of COVID, and um, they're not able to like stop people from from meeting. And I've been going to those meetings, and it's been like really, really beneficial. Um, so. So before we, ra- we we wrap up, um, I want to talk about your movie script. Oh. I love that I'm actually surprised that it's like that's not why we arranged this entire thing. Like, <laughs> oh, that 
Uh, <laughs> I love that same fucking like interview bullshitty response. Um, yeah, um, let's talk about gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> uh, gentlemen is uh, it's a short film that I am directing and I uh, adapted and wrote the screenplay for. Uh, it's actually based on a short story that a friend of mine, uh, one of my mentors, wrote about. He wrote the story about 15 years ago, and I was still in high school when I read it the first time, I think. And I just fell in love with the story, and I was just kind of figuring out that I wanted to study film and things like that. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to make this into a movie one day. Like, I've, been, <laughs> I've, I've wrote, like, maybe, like, a dozen drafts of this, like, script over the last 10 years. Just because every like year and a half or so, I'll get some bug up my ass. Like, you know, I'm going to do another pass of this and figure out how to make this movie. And we're finally doing it. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a very kind of funny, quirky thing about, it's just, uh, it's a short involving three characters. It's kind of, um, it's all about the morning after is the best way to describe it. It's all about, um, someone dealing with the consequences of what they did the night before. And uh, I guess as someone in recovery, you can kind of relate to that concept, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's very funny. It's actually um, one of the actors is someone I think, you know, uh, Carol Lacuna or no, uh, Takaria Lomenko. She changed her name. Uh, the formerly Carol Lacuna. Uh, Oh, she changed her name. She changed her name. Yes, I know. I found that out because I, I asked her, like, so is this just like a stage name? I was just like, no, I legally changed it. I'm like, oh, all right. Fair enough. Um, so it took me like a week to learn how to say her name, her new name correctly. Um, but uh, she's in it. A um, uh, couple of the great uh, local Bay Area actors uh, are in it. Uh, it's funny. I had originally written one of the parts for another friend of ours, uh, Drew Harmon was going to play one of the roles in it. And I wrote, kind of wrote it with him in mind. And then during the pandemic, him and his wife moved to Michigan. I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to have to find someone else to do that. Um, but yeah, we're, um, I'm very proud of it. I've worked very hard on it. It's something very, it's very, uh, very much a labor of love. Um, it's a project that's kind of been in my mind and in my heart for a long time. And I'm really happy that we're finally pulling the trigger on it. Um, we're trying to raise the money to uh, make it happen. Uh, we have an Indiegogo campaign going on right now. Uh, we have a pretty small budget. Um, we're trying to raise $5,000 to do it correctly. That gets us through all the shooting, lets me pay everybody, take care of everybody appropriately, and get to pay for all the post and editing work to be done. Um, we're at, I think we're at 20% of our goal. I think we hit $1,000 today, something like all that. Right. And um, we've got three more weeks in the campaign. It ends on the 30th of June. And if you guys want to support us, any donation gets you a free download of the finished film. Um, you know, if you want to throw in a buck or five bucks or someone threw in like, I think we had somebody throw in $400, which is insane to me. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something that I'm very proud of and I think it'll be worth contributing to. Um, it's going to support a lot of local Bay Area artists as well. And um, I'm weird and ethnic, so it supports artists of color. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, 
it's something very important to me. And I think it's something that will be enjoyed by people. And if anybody who wants to contribute and help us out, I would be very, very grateful for that. Um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to shoot and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's a labor of love. Cool. Yeah. I, I got to read, I got to read the script and, um, I am, I'm like picturing it in my head, but of course it's going to like be, be different when like when you shoot, shoot it. Cause you have, you have the vision, but what I got of, out of it and I think it's a timely a subject matter to keep exploring on, on like, you know, the funny, you know, it's serious, you know, the morning after the more, you know, taking responsibility in the morning after when, when, um, you know, a night of drinking and like, you know, create and like craziness. Whereas before it's like, you know, anytime like I saw like content of like the morning after it was just maybe a little bit more dis dismissive, you know, but I think this, like what you wrote is more like, yeah, it, like there, there is funny. There is some, some humor, there is some humor for it, but, but I think like overarching, it just continues the dialogue of responsibility and like everyone wants a good time. Everyone wants a good time, but it's just like, again, like going back to the conversations of, of consent and what, what does that mean? And maybe having those conversations while while drinking you're not able to to fully engage and be present with like you know with another human yeah i kind of like i always loved the idea of those like kind of like farcical you know sitcomy things or like you have shows like three's company where like oh there's just all these ridiculous situations we're all getting into but like, I feel like they never took that extra step towards like the darker reality of like what's going on. And like, you know, they're, yeah. so I, that, that's kind of always appealed to me is that like extra step. It's just like, yeah, this is funny on the surface, but what else is going on? What's the subtext? Like it's, you know, it, it, at the heart of it on the surface, it's just like, you know, this character Chris is panicked and he's calling his friend for help. But I feel like there's like a couple other layers for how he's asking for help in that moment. It's not just, you know, it's not just the superficial thing. I think there's, I think there's more to it. I think, and I think there, there's, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of satisfaction in that story being told. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and on, on that note, where, where can people find you? And we, I will be putting the Indiegogo link in the show notes. Um, so go and support indie filmmaking. Yes. Uh, if you go on Indiegogo.com, you can just type in Gentleman Film, and it'll show up on there. Um, you can also find the link to that on GregAndZorian.com. I also have uh, my live comedy albums are online. Um, they're on iTunes and all those places. I've got my first one, which was live at Deluxe, uh, which recorded at Club Deluxe in San Francisco. Um, I was there. I was there for yeah, that. You were there. you were there for that. I think my laugh uh, is on that. <laughs> you know what's funny? is like you, you can audibly hear Ben Feldman give you one of those, huh, <laughs> and not laugh. <laughs> oh, my God. 
god, yeah, he does that. And it's like it's very clearly him. Like I, every once in a while, like it'll pop up on my iTunes or something like that, and I'll just hear, "Oh yeah, Ben Feldman," judgingly giving me like a half laugh. Okay. Um, uh, and then I've got my other one. I got my second album that we did at the Punchline um, back in 2014, and that one is Fifty Shades of Greg. Uh, I feel like the title of that second album alone just cost me a lot of donations to the film like just right there Um, but yeah no you can uh, can support me that way pretty much any money you want to throw towards my last name right now is going to go into this film so you can help me out that way Uh, there's also a lot of um, a lot of like not prizes, that's what we describe it, but there's a lot of rewards for um, certain monetary donations on the Indiegogo. Um, like if you donate a certain amount, I'll even do a free live show at an event of your choosing. If you have something going on or I'll MC an event that you guys have going on later in the year. Um, I, uh, I'm i also willing to do, because um, uh, I work as a comedy writer and as an editor, so um you know, if you donate to a certain tier, I'm willing to edit or punch up anything you're writing or a presentation you have to do, something like that. We've got a lot of a lot of different offers on there on the Indiegogo. Um, yeah, so, you know, throw us a buck, throw us five bucks. Anything you give us, you'll still at least get to see the movie when we're done. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, and so, yep, uh, follow for the debut. Just, uh, like, follow Greg and on look in the show notes. Oh, and, and Twitter, yeah, at Megazorian, all that stuff. Cool. It's a great way I'll to say get... things I can't say out loud in any given time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, you could follow me. Go to my website, vcomedy.com. I'm also on Cameo. If anyone wants a, a personal video message from me, get me on Cameo. And um, links, my links and Greg's link links are in the show notes uh thank you so much greg for coming on to great. the podcast it was great getting to catch up with you this was yeah. really nice yeah good luck with everything and um can't wait till the movie comes out thanks a lot thank you so much veronica it's good seeing you okay bye everyone